First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't generate amusing holiday cards, but it will personalize career paths for your people and let you know which suppliers are best so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. I think we purposely focused on just doing one thing really well, which was let's focus on bringing this wedding registry product to market, driving as great and as much awareness of this product within our target market, which is engaged couples planning their wedding. And let's not get distracted by doing anything else apart from that for the first two years. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin. You're listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. Today's episode, Take the Time to Build a Rock-Solid Foundation. There's a term in the business and tech world. I'm sure the vast majority of our listeners are familiar with it. It's called Minimum Viable Product or MVP. This is the idea that certain types of companies, tech startups in particular, should launch early, as soon as they have something built that, well, functions. Once it's live, that scrappy product can be built upon and improved and made stronger thanks to getting feedback early and often from real users. But what users don't know is that while using that little photo sharing app or campus directory, behind boardroom doors, that company's funding has perhaps been contingent on growth that requires not just their MVP to work, but the whole company to expand into other, bigger areas. There can be a lot of pressure to follow up on your first big idea with a second idea, a third idea, and a multitude of new products. There can be pressure to take on an entire existing industry. But before doing so, if you haven't completely fulfilled the vision of your first core idea, you can find yourself without a solid foundation, which is exactly what I talked to today's guest about. She's Shan Ma, the CEO and co-founder of Zola. She launched the online wedding registry site in 2013. And while it has expanded into many other products, like formal stationery and event website building, these were very recent moves, taken only after years spent building the core of her business. Here's my conversation with Shan Lin Ma. Shan, tell me a little bit about your path to entrepreneurship. What did you think you'd be when you were little? And when did um, starting a company kind of come into your mind as, as a possible path? Well, I, I was born in Singapore, but grew up in Sydney, Australia. And in growing up in Australia, it's one of the, probably the best places in the world to, to be able to grow up um, and had you know, I was fortunate to grow up there and have supportive and loving parents who um, instilled a very serious work ethic from day one. Um, but 
And the thing about Australia is that it is also very far away from the rest of the world. Um, and you really feel that living there. Um, so I, my connection to the world was through books and magazines. And I was reading a lot about um, the up and coming kind of exciting things happening in the world. At that time, the thing that really excited me was what was happening in the tech revolution that was underway, um, really kind of started by great companies in Silicon Valley. I was reading about entrepreneurs doing and building world-changing products. Um, specifically, Jerry Yang was my hero. He's the, the founder <laughs> of Yahoo, which I think was really the pioneer of you know, the original consumer internet portal that made the world accessible to myself as well as so many people around the world. Um, so the right. You don't hear about many little girls <laughs> like idolizing Jerry Yang. Well, yeah. Well, the funny thing is, you know, like many other little girls, I had posters of people I loved, including you know, Kylie Minogue and Michael J. Fox and, of course, Jerry Yang <laughs> right next to it, <laughs> people I admire. And I always dreamt about, you know, being able to 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 start or work at a company like Yahoo one day. Um, and so uh, in Australia, kind of the really, my parents had, um, you know, didn't have a lot of money growing up. And so they said anything that I needed or wanted for myself, I had to earn it. Uh, I always dreamt about one day being able to work in Silicon Valley. Uh, my mom, who always had bigger dreams for me than, than I could even imagine for myself, um, always said, you know, one day I should go to business school in the U.S. So I always had that in my mind, even though it was strange because I never knew anyone who'd gone to business school or had worked or lived in the U.S. But I had my mind focused on that. I did a ton of work to prepare myself to be able to apply, apply to a ton of schools and was fortunate enough to get into one that was situated right in Silicon Valley. So I was able to do an MBA uh, and during that time did an internship at my dream company, which was Yahoo, which turned... You made it to Yahoo. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and that turned into you know my dream full-time job there after school. Um, and just as a side note, I think one of the, the best days ever that I had was the day I passed Jerry Yang in the hallway. <laughs> And uh, I will never forget that. <laughs> did You didn't faint or anything, did you? Uh, I didn't physically faint, but I felt very faint. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So it, this did all sort of lead you to then New York and to, to meeting some of the folks that you would go on to found Zola with. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So after a few years working at Yahoo, working in Silicon Valley, I then wanted to work in a smaller startup and can get a more um, scrappy entrepreneurial experience. And at that time, I was shopping a lot on this new website that had just launched called Guilt Group, which was really one of the pioneers of um, consumer e-commerce based in New York. Applied to be the first product manager there, um, got the job, so moved to New York to take the job. And uh, since and then was there for the first four years of the company, really got to be um, an early employee with a front row seat into a hyper growth company, um, which where I learned a great deal. I met and worked alongside incredible people and that really helped me define what kind of 
company would I like to build one day and who were the people that I would like to work alongside. Um, so after four, you know, thrilling and exhausting but exhilarating years, um, left to go to another startup and then after being there for a short amount of time, realized that I felt like I missed some of the people that I worked with at Guild. I wanted to work with them again, and I was also ready to start something myself, and that was the start of Zola. That's fascinating. So how did you reapproach your, your old colleagues, um, including, you know, one of the founders of Guilt, Kevin Ryan? Um, he he had been sort of this legend in the New York startup scene, right, with uh, founding co-founding Business Insider as well um, and a couple other companies, too. So how do you go back to someone who hired you and say, uh, so I flew the coop, but do you want to start it over with me? <laughs> Well, I think, you know, one of the, the best things about that working experience and those four years that I worked there was the relationships um, that and the work that I got to do alongside great people, as well as work for and learn from great people such as Kevin Ryan. Um, so uh, my co-founder of Zola, his name is Nobu, and Nobu was the head of the user experience design team at Guilt. Um, Nobu and I worked incredibly closely together for the years that we were there because um, I, where I was in a product role and he was in a product design role, we would naturally partner together along with great engineering leaders to think up and then bring to life consumer products and features that we thought those customers would really love. Sure, sure. Yeah, and he he's just the, the most incredible design genius that I've ever met. And so we had always been working closely and then kept in touch after we had both left Guilt. And so Nobu and I had lunch one day. We started talking about apps and products that we ourselves were using that we thought could be better. Um, we started talking about how the fact that that year, which was 2013, all my friends were getting married at exactly the same time. And I was complaining about how stressful it was for me as a guest buying gifts from their painful wedding registries. Nobu, who is married, was talking about how painful it was for him in the wedding planning process. And we both, I think a light bulb went off in our heads at the same time. We had a aha moment where we thought, you know, we are the people that do a much better job at this. Um, as with all ideas and in kind of product development, we, we thought it was a great idea, but we also wanted to share the idea with people we trusted to get their feedback and thoughts. And one of those people and mentors was Kevin Ryan. You know, we caught up with him for drinks. We were talking about different ideas, including um, the idea for a much better wedding planning and wedding registry site. And as we were talking about our ideas here, Kevin's eyes lit up. He said, you know, I've always loved and wanted to, to do something in weddings. Let's do it together. Uh, I'll give you the funding and we let's get started. And we started working on it 24-7 pretty much the next yeah. day. Oh, fantastic. I was going to ask how soon that became, you know, your 24-7 job working at your, your kitchen table or, or wherever it was that you two hunkered down and started the company. Yeah, I think it was it was very soon thereafter in the days following that conversation. Um, Nobu and I were just so excited to kind of bring 
some of the ideas we had to live to put in front of users to see if it would work. Um, so at that time, I was living in um, downtown Manhattan in a tiny apartment, you know, smaller than 700 square feet for the entire apartment. Um, didn't have enough space to have a, a proper table and proper chairs. So I had a low coffee table um, where Nobu and I kind of sat on the floor <laughs> each day. We would come, <laughs> we'd sit on the floor, we would sketch out what were the needs, pain points, ideas, um, and then paste them up on the wall and and start to iterate on those every day. Kind of the the wall of my apartment was covered in sketches. And I think every time my friends came over, they would be so curious, like what is going on and why does this look like a scene out of Homeland? But right. um, <laughs> it looks like a, you know, like a police uh, investigative <laughs> <laughs> unit wall. That's great. Um, and so you had, you know, you had you, you, all this, the skills and experience that you yourself and Nobu brought to the table. You had funding from Kevin Ryan, ostensibly some advice from him as well. But uh, after that point, you had to fundraise um, and get some additional money behind your idea, right? Um, and that was no walk in the park. Am I correct? Well, you know, I think if, like many startups, each fundraising round and each fundraising experience is very different <laughs> and unique. And ours was no different. Um, so after we had been fortunate enough to take the seed funding from Kevin Ryan, um, Nobu and I quickly started to focus on defining what do we need to really build uh, MVP or also known as minimum viable product. What is the product that we feel comfortable launching with that has enough differentiation that it gives couples a reason to want to use Zola instead of any existing competitors, but also um, how can it be constrained enough that we can build it very quickly, get it to market and see if it will actually work before we invest a ton of time and resources unnecessarily. And in order to build that MVP, we realized, okay, we need a small um, but scrappy team to get it all done, including ourselves. And we thought the first set of people, what could also be called a minimum viable team or, you know, the team for the MVP was first and foremost a CTO, so a technical leader who would both build it as well as bring on great engineers to work with us to build the product. Um, we And then the other person was one merchandising person. We needed, because our wedding registry product and vision was really focused on how do we let couples register for everything they want all in one place from products to experiences to cash um, and both s traditional well-known household brands, but you know, also alongside cool, new, innovative boutique brands um, that required a merchandising person. And so we brought on one merchandising person who worked with myself to really go and get all those brands that we wanted for launch. Uh, while Nobu and Felix, our CTO, and um, Jason and Dylan, who were our earliest engineers, were building the product. And that was the team that really kind of cranked on it to get that product out. So what was your biggest challenge within the first two years? Um, the, I would say it was 
really how do we define what to focus on and not focus on during those first two years. You know, I think we purposely focused on just doing one thing really well, which was let's focus on bringing this wedding registry product to market, driving as great and as much awareness of this product within our target market, which is engaged couples planning their wedding. And let's not get distracted by doing anything else apart from that for the first two years. And I think, you know, it's, it's harder than it sounds because many companies, when they see success in their first product, I think they very quickly want to start expanding in, and doing more and more. And that's a very natural tendency. Um, we had done that and seen that in our previous company working together. And we'd saw, seen some of the pitfalls of expanding very quickly. And so we went in the opposite direction even though many couples who used us for wedding registry and loved us and wanted us to help with more of their wedding planning journey, were kind of begging us to do new products. We held off on that actually for the first four years. And it was only after we felt like we had very a clear foothold in the wedding registry world that we then expanded. Um, and so that's hard because, you know, I think the strategy of a company um, and what is the right strategy is only apparent often in the rear view mirror. And it, it feels very unclear at the time what the right strategy is. Um, but in retrospect, I'm glad that we picked that path because it meant that we had this um, true product market fit and we were able to kind of build that, that strong lead. And now it's very hard for any new competitor to catch up with us. That's fascinating. So four years you spent building that set initial product and making sure it was super sturdy. How did you come to that that kind of stay the course, make this one thing strong idea and goal? Did was was there was there a growth goal you were trying to reach or or was it something else in your mind and in the minds of the team, your executive team? Yeah, because Nobu and my background is in product management and creating consumer products, we've always been very focused on the voice of our users. And in this case, our couples who are getting married. And so I think the decision of when, when are we ready to lift our heads up and launch a second product was very much driven by what we were hearing from couples. And we, from, I would say the first month of launch were, have always been talking to, getting feedback from, surveying and hearing what do our couples think of our wedding registry product and and then subsequently our other wedding planning products. And then that informed our product roadmap. And in the early days or really the early years, because we launched with that MVP product that was really kind of the core things that we thought were most important, there was still actually a long list of other things that we knew our couples needed and wanted that we then spent the next few years building into the product. So specifically things like how do you add your partner <laughs> to your wedding registry so that they can have you know, the ability to, to access everything that you can as well. Um, all these things you know, we knew couples wanted that and it helped differentiate us. And so we needed time to make sure we could build the, kind of the full vision of the product that our couples deserved. 
We'll be right back after a quick break. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. More recently, you've had to lay off some 20% of your staff. Is that correct? Um, How did you come to that decision? And what was your thinking leading up to it? When we saw the impact that COVID-19 was having to our business uh, and the industry and the world at large, we knew we needed to make changes to our team, just like so many other companies have done before and after us. Um, So we we let go um, 20% of our team, as well as put in place a one-day furlough for the remainder of the team, which means that everyone has a 20% pay cut um, in exchange for one day off a week, which is Friday. Um, For several people on our leadership team, we had even deeper pay cuts, including Nobu, my co-founder and myself, and really uh, kind of looking at everything um, that we had previously um, spent money on in the business from the contracts that we had signed um, to see how we can reduce expense during this time. Yeah, I imagine that was a difficult decision. Um, how did you how did you come to it? And how did you um, also talk to your team about it? I mean, especially doing a, a mass pay cut, um, that must have been difficult. It was honestly probably the toughest day that um, I and we as a company have had in, in the history of Zola. It was incredibly tough. There is no perfect way to to do this. I think there is a lot of um, advice and examples that we can look to of how other people and company have handled um, such decisions, but there there is no perfect answer and it's hard on, on many people. Most, most of all, of course, the people who lost their jobs. What we tried to do at Zola was um, do it in a way that is consistent with our company values, which is from day one, we've tried to be transparent. We've tried to give insight to the entire company on how we're tracking from a business metric standpoint every day, week, month, quarter. And so I think you know, people could see, and we also try to communicate, obviously when weddings are not happening right now, um, our business is not the same as when weddings are happening. And so for that reason, I think people on the team um, knew and kind of had the heads up that there would have to be some tough changes in the business. And and we tried to communicate that in as humane a way as possible, as well as try to do whatever we can to take care of um, those who were impacted by the layoffs. And, And so while, of course, it's never perfect or easy. Uh, what I have been a little heartened by is the feedback that we had heard from people who were impacted in the, the worst way to who gave us feedback that they felt like they had been 
treated um, humanely and they appreciated the communication, even though it was a tough thing to hear. Yeah, I mean, and the, it, it's an interesting decision to kind of cut down the work week a little bit, cut down salaries a little bit, rather than say laying off another twenty percent of the staff, right? Um, did they? Was that some of the feedback that that folks had? Yeah, absolutely, I think the you know we as a leadership team we debated for a long time on what the right thing was to do, and ultimately, you know, we felt like this a furlough for one day a week meant that we could save the most jobs as well as execute on the things on our roadmap. And even though it was a, a reduced roadmap because you obviously can't necessarily get the same amount of work done with less people and less time, but there were things that we had defined we still believe are the right things to work on in our company, as well as some new things that we should reprioritize to the top of the list, given the new environment. And once we defined those and said, okay, this is the set of activities we want to focus on and work on in the company in the next six months, what is the the team size and the number of hours that we need to get that work done? And in order to do that, um, it was a combination of with the one day furlough, we could save the most jobs as well as feel like we could execute against the roadmaps. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, the team um, also fed back to us that they felt great about it because they felt like we were all in this together and everyone was who was left on the team was kind of impacted in the same way and that, you know, everyone has the, the one day a week furlough and, you know, leaders had an even bigger hit. And so, you know, that is expected. That is the right thing to do. But ultimately, I think we are, we, we still need to work on the things to drive the business forward, both through this period of time, as well as after. And, and we thought that this was kind of the optimal way to do this. And as, as the, the leader, like, did you, were you the one who actually had to communicate this to your staff? I mean, you say it was the most difficult day um, that you've been through as a company, but for you particularly, I can't imagine what that was like. Um, can you bring me kind of inside your head a little bit, um, what it was actually like and how you actually communicated it to the staff um, and what it felt like for you? So it was, it was an extremely tough day for everyone at Zola from those who, who I think, you know, from kind of the worst perspective lost their jobs, uh, but even, you know, the, the team who had to communicate the message, it's extremely hard. Um, and, and for me personally, I think it was most certainly the worst day that I have, have had since starting Zola. Uh, but what I try to think of is it, it is not about me personally, it is about the company and and treating the people who are most impacted with as much respect and humanity as we can and being as clear in the communication as we can. And that was what I, tr I kept trying to force myself to think through. And the more that I thought, this really is not about me, it's about doing the right thing for the company, the you know, that kind of line in my head again and again was, was what gave me the strength to communicate things that, of course, no leader wants to communicate. Yeah, yeah, sure. How I mean, so kind of get out of your head when you're having to go through those tough those tough times. How do you how do you do that? Like, how do you learn to do that? Um, and to not let yourself kind of 
be so emotion, be emotional about it. You know, I think the, um, on occasions like this, it's not necessary to fully take emotion out of the message. Um, and you know, I felt, I felt extremely sad on this day. And you know, while I tried to get out of my head, um, I think the, the fact that I was not hiding the fact that it was an extremely sad day um, was, was, was something that um, people felt a connection to me and, and I think I felt a connection to others about. And I think that um, being able to, to relate to the team and to, your, to whatever leader you're working with is important to, to everyone. And so I don't feel like I have to hide my emotions. I do think people look to their leader and to me to be strong. And so I tried to, to be strong, but also I wasn't hiding the fact that it was, it was extremely sad. So it's more of a mix. And that's something that you and I have I've talked about in the past is how to kind of be um, be your genuine self while you're leading the company. Now that you've been at this for for many years, can you kind of walk me through your thinking on that and how to how to kind of be a genuine leader? You know, when I was working at other companies, I would look to the leaders of those companies as as almost people who were slightly scary to me. You know, I think <laughs> if I think back to uh, my interactions with past leaders that I've worked for, I think my, in my head at the time, I thought, oh, they know exactly what the right answer is. And they are uh, just waiting to catch me up. And I need to know every single fact um, otherwise, and I need to know all the answers or I need to follow everything they say. And that is how to get ahead. And actually what, you know, I realized is that of course that isn't true. No one knows all the right answers. No one knows the answers to the tough decisions at the time that you have to make them. And the best thing that you can do either as a leader or as someone that's working with a leader is to bring forward as many relevant insights and user feedback and data as you can. And that is, is how to make the best decision you can at the time. And it may not be right, but it's important to make the decision. And so what I try to get across um, in any work that I do with my team now is I don't know what the right answers are, but I know that we'll make it together if we have smart people and we have interesting ways and smart ways of looking at a ton of data and insights. Um, that's how you figure it out and we'll figure it out together. And I will, and many people on the team will ask a hundred different tough questions. And we don't expect everyone to have the answers at the top of their tongue, but we expect people to get them and, and then figure it out. And so that has been the big aha for me as a leader is how to put myself in the shoes of my team and also how to help them put themselves in my shoes to know that we're all in this together. Thank you so much, Shanlin Ma, CEO and co-founder of Zola for joining us today. Thank you, Christine. Appreciate it. Thank you. 
After speaking with Shan, it really impressed me that she worked so hard early on, not just on getting Zola's site and the initial offerings right, but on building a company robust in talent and culture to support it all. But it didn't just take a few months or a year. It took four years. And only then was she comfortable enough to branch out. What's also impressive is that she's recognizant that this strategy was, of course, easy to pin the company's success on once those early days were well in the rearview mirror. She says that when you're starting out, it's never going to be crystal clear what the right strategy is. This path she picked was one of many. But it worked. It was the right strategy for Zola. Having a sturdy product helped it gain enough market dominance that Shan had a good deal of confidence that competitors, especially those only schooled in Silicon Valley's focus on MVP, won't be catching up anytime soon. Patience and perseverance were key to making it work. And those can certainly help any business right now. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. Since we're just starting out, we'd love it if you could please subscribe to What I Know wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also really appreciate it if you could recommend us to a friend or help recommend us to a lot of people by leaving your rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you could recommend us to a friend or help recommend us to a lot of people by leaving your rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I know it seems like a small thing, but your thoughts really do help other people who'd love this podcast find us. You can also drop us a note anytime at whatiknowatinc.com. Let us know what you think about MVP. Also, who else should be on our podcast? Our producer, who is currently eBaying a poster of Jerry Yang, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know. <laughs> <laughs>